6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 3 and 4. You see, what's interesting to me, we all know this story that we just read, how Solomon, God said, ask what you'd like, and, I'll get, and, give, and he asked for wisdom, so God got not only wisdom, I'll give you honor, and da, 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 da. great, that's super. And yet we discover, ultimately, Solomon blew it. We're going to discover that he, he really makes a mess of things at the end. See, what most of us don't pay attention to is what did David ask for? It isn't quite so formalized as a request and a response, but in the scripture, if you study the life of David, you discover when David had a choice, all he wanted was to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All he wanted was fellowship with God. Boy, isn't that interesting. He didn't want riches. He didn't ask for anything. He just wanted fellowship with God. And I think it's interesting that David's situation is extolled above Solomon's. An interesting contrast, in my mind at least. You know, check it out yourself. But now here's a famous event. It's probably one of the most famous people who know nothing else about Solomon know this little incident recorded in verse 16 and following. There came to him two women. The, the picture here that's implied is the king's there and he's taking on problems. People are coming up with their, with their situations. Coming to the king for, uh, to, to uh, judge whatever is going on. There came two women that were harlots unto the king, and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. That's a little strange. Really. And I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. So these two women and their recently born babes are in this house. And she goes on, and this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. In other words, some, I presume what that means is that somehow she smothered it. Inadvertently, obviously, um, uh, the child died. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid had slept, meaning myself, and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. So she's accusing this woman of having switched the, the, the babes. She said, when I rose in the morning and gave my child suck, behold, it was dead. And when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And they said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. So you're Solomon. What do you do? How are you going to test it? You, can't, you don't have a DNA test you can apply. I mean, you know, what, what, how do you deal with this situation? You're the king. Then said the king, the one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And get this, I love this. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought him a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one, and half to the other. <laughs> That'll solve the problem. <laughs> and obviously he's playing with them in a sense. Uh, but he's, he's, he's creating the impression he's serious. 
Take the sword and let's let each pretty simple problem. We'll just divide it in two and give each half. See, Solomon was a shrewd judge of human nature. He understood how a mother would feel about her, 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 her son. Then spake the woman whose living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. She said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and no way slay it, no wise slay it. And the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. And the king answered and said, Give her the living child, for and in no wise slay it, for she is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. And um, this is probably one of the most famous little anecdotes that exemplifies the, the shrewdness and the insight of, of, of uh, Solomon. And a very famous story. You've probably all heard it. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I can add much uh, to it. Uh, let's go on to the next chapter, chapter 4. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were the... Now, we, what we're going to find out, by the way, what we've just seen is a chapter. Chapter 3 really sort of focuses on the wisdom of Solomon. Now, we're in chapter 4, we're going to talk about his political administration, his skill at administration. So King Solomon was king over all of Israel. And uh, by the way, one of the, the, the skills in administration is delegation of authority. It always intrigues me to discover how often the insecurity of an executive seems to prevent him from appointing competent delegates to take on portions of his authority. The guys that are insecure tend to try to run, micromanage everything. The guys that are strong have the perception to, to, to identify and raise up and train people to whom uh, they can delegate. Uh, and that's a, that's a mark of wisdom, by the way. Uh, there are some very, very substantial ministries that are faltering today because of the inability or the lack of preparation of the principal who built the ministry to really organize and raise up leadership to prevent it from ossifying into, into a, a rigid structure and so forth. It takes, it takes great skill. Anyway, uh, so these are the princes which uh, Solomon had. Azariah, the son of Zadok the priest, uh, Eli Haref, and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha the scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. Three men are called priests, Azariah, Zadok, and Abiathar. We could go into all that. By the way, when it says son, recognize the word son in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean, it can also mean grandson or great-grandson. It means descendant. We think of son as the immediate offspring of a father. That's not the way the word is used in the Hebrew. And when they say that so-and-so is the son of somebody, it all just means he could be the son or grandson or great-grandson. It's, it's a descendant. But that's neither here. Let's not get into that right here. Um, so we got these secretaries or scribes, if you will. And that was an important office. Uh, they prepared all the royal edicts and so forth, affecting trade, commerce, and military things, and kept the official records. The scribes, are those are non-trivial roles you need to understand. And Jehoshaphat maintained the records of the daily affairs and so forth. And he also served in that capacity under David, so he's a carryover from the old days. Now, Benaniah, uh, the son of Jehida, was over the host. He was, in other words, the military commander. And Zadok and Biathar were the priests. So that's a recap, if you will. Uh, Zadok and Abiathar served as co-priests, but uh, Abiathar had sided with Adonijah, you may recall, so he's going to be dismissed by uh, Solomon. Zadok will continue as the high priest. And he, he's listed here in the official records, even though he was fired from the high priest. He retained the title and the honor, if you will, uh, even after he was deposed is the point. And uh, so it's, it's very possible that he may have had some menial duties under Zadok there. That's speculation. We're not sure. But verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. And Zabud, the son of Nathan, was the principal officer and the king's friend. And Abiashar was over the household. And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was the over the tribute. We've got two men listed here as the sons of Nathan. They may have been the sons of one man, or they might be sons of different Nathans. Scholars can debate that if they like. 
Um, the Azariah here is not the Azariah in verse 2, by the way, but he's in charge of 12 district officers that we're going to look from verse 8 on. We'll take a quick glimpse of the 12 districts that uh, Solomon uh, organized. And uh, Zabut, by the way, was of uh, the priestly line and served as the king's advisor. Abishar is uh, in charge of the palace, the household, if you will, and probably overseeing the servants and other workers there. And Adoniram was over the forced labor, the non-Israelites living in Israel that were conscripted to work for the king. And there are a lot of verses on that. I'll leave that in the notes. Now I get to verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided vittles for the king and for his household. Each man, his month in a year, made provision. So there's 12 officers, but each one was responsible for supplying for a particular month. So 12, 12 months, 12 guys, I guess, is the thing. I'm always amused whenever I think of the 12. I, I, I always have fond memories. When we were in the garden tomb in Jerusalem, there's a British guide there. And he, when he talks about this, the, the huge cistern that re- demonstrates that the, the whole garden was under one owner at one time, he says it's 250,000 gallons. And then he usually adds, you know, he says, if God wanted us on the metric system, that's what he did. He's, he's apologizing for using gallons rather than liters. And he said, if you wanted on the metric system, he would have added 10 disciples. And so that's just, a, and so, so, so that's just his little humor. But whenever I see twelve officers, I always think that you know the twelve. Anyway, now we're going to get into the the twelve names. And instead of trying to mispronounce all these names, because I have very little to add to them, I'll look at it another way. Here is a map of the region, and I want you to notice in this region you have uh, the Dead Sea, of course, and up north you have the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you'll notice uh, uh, to the west of that you have Phoenicia, if you will, and to the east of that you have Aram, which is now known as Syria, and uh, to the uh, east you also have Bashan and so forth, and, and Gilead, this is all on the eastern side of the Jordan, down to Ammon, uh, Gad, Moab, and so forth. These are the, the regions, as you probably know. Now, in verse 8, these are their names, the son of Hur and Mount Ephraim. That's region 1 there in the area of Ephraim. And the term Ephraim sometimes is used for a whole larger area because it's the dominant tribe of a group, but that's where it is. And verse 9 is, is uh, another group, you know, the second group of uh, region. Uh, and then we have the uh, uh, Shoko and so forth, that the land of Heifer is region three. It's along the coast there, if you will, north of Philistia, but south uh, still of Asher and of, of Sidon. And then you have uh, version four uh, is, is uh, again, another region moving up the coast there. So uh, in uh, slightly inland, then, of course, you have Beth Shan and all of that from, the, from that coastal area to the Jordan. And then verse 13, um, you've got uh, Bashan, um, there in the uh, in that region. Now, my quick mention about Bashan, by the way, that was also the land of the giants, and uh, the, the land of, uh, among others, the Rephaim, the Walking Dead, if you will. And uh, one of the things that still puzzles me, I'm still doing research on, in, in, in Psalm 22, where you have the Lord, words of the Lord hanging on the cross, as detailed in Psalm 22. One of the strange remarks he makes as he hangs on that cross is that the bulls of Bashan have encompassed me. And I wonder, I, I, I'm still puzzled as to what that means. I don't think there's cattle roaming around the cross, or even if there were, that's not the issue. The bulls of Bashan, I think, I suspect it may be a demonic thing of some kind that's going on that has been unexplored, to the best of my knowledge, in the commentaries. And we're going to, I'm going to try to research that a little bit. But anyway, and then we have in Gad, we have uh, Manahim, if you will, that, remember, that, that uh, region seven there, that's again east of the Jordan. Petraea, if you will, in terms of the gospel time period. Uh, then we have uh, Naphtali, uh, which is up there, uh, verse 15 deals with that. 
you know, this Ahimez was, was in Naphtali. He also took Basmeth, the daughter of Solomon, to wife, so he married well, apparently. Then verse 16, we have Asher up there in the, in the region of Asher, which lies between Naphtali, which is around the Galilee, and uh, the Phoenicia to the, to the west. Then you have Jehoshaphat in Issachar, region 10, if you will, south of that, still West Bank as it's called today, and uh, Shimei uh, in Benjamin, never mind, he was a Benjamite, and whether that's the same Shimei or not, it's a big debate, I won't get into that here. And then, of course, region 12 uh, is in the area of Gad, country of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and he was the only officer in the land. So, uh, again, we have Bashan as a region up further north, but all that's sort of associated with, if you will, the East Bank. So those, anyway, are the 12 regions that uh, Solomon organizes. Not a lot to say about each one. We could spend time on it, but I think that's the pretty straightforward. It's kind of interesting that there isn't one of the 12 that's in charge of Judah and Jerusalem. See, they're subservient, in a sense, to Judah and Jerusalem. So I don't uh, presume that Judah was tax-free, but clearly the, the main revenue was raised in these 12 districts by these 12 guys. But I want you to notice, actually, his his his, his sovereignty really overlaps uh, these just 12 regions because it includes the Philistines, Phoenicia on the west, and, of course, uh, Aram, Moab, Edom, and so forth. Anyway, so there we are. Jude and Israel were many as the sandwiches by the sea uh, in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines, that's on the west side, and unto the border of Egypt, to the south, and they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now notice, you worry about your taxes. Notice, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 oxen out of the pastures, 100 sheep beside hearts or deer, roebucks and fallow deer and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsah even to Azah over all the kings of on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides about him. I might mention just one small thing is that uh, this Tifsa is in the north, that is uh, Saskus. It's a large and flourishing town on the west bank of the Euphrates. The name is derived from a very celebrated ford over that river, and it's the lowest on that river. So it's all the way from the Euphrates to Gaza is what it's saying. That's uh, that, You need to understand that. So when people talk about the west bank, you can often ask, which river did you have in mind? In Solomon's days, the west bank was Euphrates, not the Jordan, sorry, by the way. In verse 25, it says, Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, uh, all the days of Solomon. Now, this idea of every man under his vine and fig tree, that is uh, a figurative expression, really, uh, for peace and prosperity. It's all through the Bible. You find it many times. It's really an, an idiom. It's a symbol of the nation of Israel pictured in the promised land under agricultural abundance is the, is the portrayal. When it says from Dan to Beersheba, Dan was way up in the north, and Beersheba is to the south. So from Dan to Beersheba is an expression that we might use in our country from Maine to California. That's sort of the flavor. It's not all the United States. You've got Alaska and Hawaii. But in a sense, when you're trying to encompass it, it's from Maine to California. It's the extent. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for the king Solomon and all that came unto the king Solomon's table. Every man in his month, they lacked nothing. Barley and also straw for the horses and dromedaries. Dromedaries, are, you know, is a, a single hump camel, obviously. Brought uh, they two unto the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart. Interesting. That really is a Hebrew term meaning breadth of mind, 
largeness of heart is a, a strange to our ears, but in, in our days it's equivalent to saying, speaking of somebody who had an encyclopedic wisdom, he sort of knew everything, sort of the flavor of it. It's not so much an emotional term alone as, as a man of whose understanding was vast. That's really what it's trying to say. Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And uh, wisdom is the ability to live life successfully. And even though he possessed this ability, he didn't always apply it to his own life. So thus he's presumably the wisest man that ever lived. He did not live wisely, uh, as many others who both preceded and followed. The guys that lived before him and after him that lived more wisely, even though he was wiser. He didn't necessarily apply it. How often that is that somebody, an expert in a certain area, because he fails to apply his own wisdom to his own life, stumbles. And I'll give you many examples of that, uh, in some respects, even some personal experiences in that regard. So having insight into life doesn't guarantee that we will choose what's right. The psalm's great insight was his ability to see to the core of issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean he made all the right decisions. Uh, and so that's, that's just a, you know, reality, if you will. For he was wiser than all men, and Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and and Kalkal and, and Darda and Sons of Mahal, and his fame was uh, in all the nations round about. We could go into the background of some of these guys, but uh, they were, uh, uh, Heman was the chief of the temple musicians and the king's seers in First Chronicles 25, and the other two we're not really too sure about. And the Sons of Mahal is uh, another name for Zerah, by the way, but anyway, it's, it, it, it seems to signify a dancer or a chorus. The Sons of Mahal seem to signify persons eminently skilled in poetry and music, is the, is the consensus of some of the scholars. And he spake, Kassan spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So he's a prolific guy. That in itself is quite a, a prodigious effort. And the so-called wisdom literature, as we call it, both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are attributed in large measure to Solomon. Not all the Proverbs, but most of them are attributed to Solomon. And Ecclesiastes is also a very widely misunderstood book that we have done, we've done a commentary on. Obviously, it's traditionally ascribed to Solomon, and, and, and it's not as pessimistic as most people seem to deem it such. Uh, Solomon really indicates that everything is futile or vanity if you don't look beyond what's under the sun. In other words, uh, when you first read it, it sounds, it sounds very pessimistic or fatalistic, and yet uh, the, the, the message there is, 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 is really quite profound. I encourage you to, to, to take a good serious look at that. Many, many commentaries on Ecclesiastes are quite superficial. You really need to get in behind the text to really understand what he's saying. But speaking of wisdom, we talk about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and of course the Song of Solomon attributed to him. But also Psalm 72, 127, 132 are his, and maybe some others. The reigning son of David was very prolific in his writings. He spake of trees, and from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springeth out of the wall, he spake also of beasts and of fowl, and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. And so ends this chapter. Now, I might make a few comments about the uh, years of Solomon that we're going to get into here. It's, uh, he had a long reign, and uh, the years are going to go by and increase the glory for the nation Israel. The traditional powers of the ancient world, the Egyptians and the Hittites and other empires yet to appear, Assyria and Babylon and so forth, were not aggressive during David's and or Solomon's rule. And uh, David had actually expanded the empire uh, by uh, by war. Solomon really did more by diplomacy and uh, commerce. So he his main skill was to hold what his father had gained. During Solomon's reign, the wealth and power of Israel was unmatched. And one of Solomon's 
strategies for maintaining peace was constantly strengthening Israel's uh, military capacity. And uh, like most strategists today, he wanted to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish through diplomacy. But I believe that he knew a principle that I'll quote to you, and that is, for a country to gain her ends by force, she has to be strong. But to gain her ends by diplomacy, she has to be twice as strong. And that's a widely understood premise. I'm very fond of quoting it because one of the places you find it is by Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. I love to quote that because it gets everybody upset, see. But aside from the, the, my mischievous quote, uh, it is a very key principle. If you're going to, uh, to gain by negotiation uh, or diplomacy, you need to be stronger than, if you can, even more stronger than by gaining by force. It's got to be very conspicuous. So Solomon fortified these key cities on the perimeter of Israel and set up outer command posts uh, to provide early warning of any possible military buildups. And he also developed a very mobile strike force with uh, uh, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and a stable for another 4,000 horses. And his chariot cities uh, that have been excavated and studied uh, indicate an incredible large-standing army. So yes, it's time of peace, but one reason time of peace is because he did it through strength. And of course, military readiness is always a strain on resources, but uh, throughout the years of his reign, Israel was at peace. Now David had won the respect of all the nations around uh, Israel, and Solomon now moved to make alliances with them. Many marriages to foreign women was part of the strategy, and in that day that was a very normal way to seal an international alliance. He also developed very close ties with Hiram I, the Phoenician king of Tyre. And again, he used a marriage to seal the alliance, and uh, with Tyre contributing her cedars of Lebanon and Israel providing wheat plus other foodstuffs, bound them together in commerce. And it was a commercial exchange that bound them together. They uh, both, uh, both Solomon and Hiram, uh, uh, sponsored trade ventures with ships and shipping and so forth. And that was a very key part of his foreign relations program. And uh, he was aggressive. Solomon was very aggressive economically. He invested in land and sea trade of all kinds. He developed the natural resources, built up smelteries, which excavation has shown where they were set up so the prevailing winds would provide the heat for the furnaces, in effect, in which the metals were refined. Um, he maintained a large court as well as large armies. Um, he built the temple, of course. We'll come into all of that pretty soon. And uh, that temple cost billions. It was a very, very ambitious project. But even as he does all this, even with his tremendous income, his expenses will outgrow his, his income. And we'll find that he borrowed very heavily from Hiram and others. And he took taxation from the 12 districts that we just studied. Um, and at his death, people are screaming for tax relief, and Rehoboam makes a huge mistake by not reducing that, but rather increasing it, which is his undoing in a sense. Solomon's ships are known to travel to Arabia, uh, uh, India, Africa, copper and such from mines in exchange for goods. So, so Solomon is a, is a middleman, uh, selling military hardware, buying and selling chariots and horses for peoples north and south. He's a real trade, trade specialist. He drafted laborers from pub, for public works projects by conscription, and uh, at first from foreign populations, but later, if more people needed, he pressed Israelites into service as well. And so uh, that was the expected norm of the day. He did get a lot of foreign tribute from foreign countries, and some of this was annual tribute from subject states in the form of, of gifts of various kinds and so on. In Solomon's days, Jerusalem becomes incredibly affluent. The wealth of the world flowed into Solomon's court. And, but his bureaucracy grows as well, so he gets a lot of overhead. Pretty soon the nation's wealth no longer was based on the land and what it produced. 
and uh, increasing the government controlled the wealth of the land and taxes drained the wealth from the people. And so there's, there are the seeds of, of dissent going there. And the most massive building product that we'll get into is the, the temple. And the gold used in this construction is apparently estimated at over two and a half billion dollars. And that's when you talk about $35 an ounce, the old formula. Multiply that by 10 today and you got a better feeling for it. So call it 25 billion. That's big money. Yeah, I remember what, was it Tip O'Neill had always said, you know, a billion here and a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking real money. So we're going to study the temple and it has some similarities to the tabernacle, but probably more profoundly some very interesting dissimilarities. There ends the, uh, the, this rather quick survey of chapters three and four. Encourage you for the coming sessions to read the subsequent chapters. We'll be taking a few, we won't be just taking two, we'll be taking a few more. So I encourage you to go ahead and read through, uh, first Kings in preparation for our next sessions and, uh, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this record of your people Israel. And Father, we thank you for the insights that you have tucked away in these passages. We thank you, Father, for choosing a people through which to establish your plan of redemption. And we thank you, Father, for the Son of David that ultimately comes to be our Savior and our Redeemer. We pray, Father, you'd help us understand the heritage, the background, the strengths, and the failures of these people. Help us, too, to understand that the path of blessing is a path through obedience. And yet, Father, we thank you that through Jesus Christ that our salvation is assured, not by what we do, but what he does. And we thank you, Father, for this incredible position that you've allowed us through the Son of David. And yet, Father, we also pray that you would give us insight as to your heart, Father, that we might be more responsive to what pleases you, that we might be more responsive in our lives to that which will please you, Father, and be more fruitful as stewards of the opportunities before us. We do pray, Father, through the gift of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to draw us ever closer to your word and ever more growing in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.